letters open a pathway into life. I think um, you see this when you read perhaps a family member's letter. Maybe that family member has been deceased. Maybe that family member is a long way away. Even little postcards are windows into life, aren't they? That's why they're so special. And we're finishing up today this letter, this epistle, which just means letter, of St. Paul to the Corinthian church. We're finishing a series that we started way back in um, July. We were in the uh, pavilion there at Lakewood Park, if you remember, and the weather was much different. And here, some 17 sermons later, we've reached the end. And the church has grown and expanded in Paul's day as in ours. People's, um, people have changed. Clothing's changed. Cultures have changed since St. Paul's day. Empires have risen. Empires have fallen. But Jesus' word stands just as he told St. Peter and the rest of the apostles in Matthew 16. Jesus' word has stood the church has stood over the centuries and millennia. I will build my church, Jesus promises, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. As we look at the final chapter here, chapter 16, you might be tempted to have your eyes gloss over. <laughs> um, because we're reading a letter, and we don't know these people. We don't know Stephanus or Fortunus. We don't know these places. We don't know these names of places, even those have changed. And so I want you to resist that because this is not just a nice closing. This is Paul summarizing everything that he's talked about in the letter. He's boiling down his final words, in this letter at least, to the Corinthian church. And if we look at that, I suggest that we see what I'm going to call for this morning's sermon, the three eyes. The three eyes. Interdependence of Christians upon one another. Interdependence of clergy. Interdependence of congregations. The three eyes. In interdependence of Christians, interdependence of clergy, interdependence of congregations. Paul goes through all three of those, and we're going to follow him with that, but we're going to start at the close to the end of the chapter rather than the beginning. So open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. Paul begins, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. 
Be subject to such as these and every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice in the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence. For they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that he wants the Corinthian Christians to be strong personally. To be strong individually. He starts there. The word here is a Greek word. It's androzite, which is from the, the root that we get the word andros, or in medicine, andrology, which of course is what? The study of men, right? And what Paul is saying here is man up. Man up. Play the man. Act as men. You know, a good coach will say that. What are you doing out there? Man up. Get after that ball. Right? Our martyrs, Latimer, Ridley, the famous quote from Ridley, who was martyred in October 1555, he turns to Latimer, or he turns to, to Ridley, these are two bishops, they're being burnt at the stake. The stake is, is ablaze and they're being led to it. And he says, play the man. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light a candle by God's grace in England, and I trust shall never be put out. Act like men is the literal translation of this. It's a phrase used by Xenophon the ancient writer, talking to soldiers. So it's, a, it's an athletic term. It's a bravery term. It's a military or martial term. Buck up, we might say. What's Paul saying to them? That they're to stand for the gospel. That they're to stand for the truths revealed. And secondly, he's saying that they're to stand, notice, in the faith. So this is where it doesn't become all about your own personal character. Yes, your personal character is important, but look how it changes here where Paul says, let all that you do be done in love, and then shifts in verse 15, now I urge you brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus and the first converts of Achaia, and you know, we go on there and we see the details of what St. Paul's saying. But look past the detail of what he's saying, the names that are being read. What is he saying in verses 15 through 18? How is it that we as Christians are to be strong, are to be courageous, are to be like the athlete that pursues the goal, are to be like the soldier that takes the hill? How are we to do that? Is it by ourselves? No. Do you see what Paul's saying? Be strong, be courageous, and how do you do that? With the rest of the believers. 
There's an interdependence upon believer and believer. There's no such thing as a strong Christian that doesn't go to church. There's no such thing as a strong Christian that isolates himself from the rest of the body. Why? Because God's made it that way, quite simply. You can't be strong outside of the team. Just like the athlete. The athlete, what happens to a team that doesn't have a plan, that doesn't run plays? Well, you have a ball hog. What happens? The guy gets clobbered, right? And the team doesn't doesn't get anywhere. What happens in the military if a soldier who's really brave says, you know, I'm going to disregard what the captain and the sergeant say, and I'm going to run up to that trench and take that machine gun nest by myself for my own bravery? What happens to that guy? Yeah, he gets mowed down. Good luck. What's Paul saying here? He's saying there's an interdependence of Christians upon one another necessary to be strong, to be strong. And notice there's a second part to this. Why is he calling them to be men? Is this a gender thing? No. What's Paul doing here? He's contrasting what he called them at the beginning of the letter. Were they men at the beginning of the letter? Think way back. What were they? They were children. And worse, they were infants. Remember, way back, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1. But I, brothers, Paul says, could not address you as a spiritual people, but as people of flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready yet, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you, not, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So Paul's not just calling them to be strong and courageous, as some translations translate this. He's calling them to be mature, to be grown up. You could translate this as a, equally effectively, grow up, be grown, be adults, be mature. Be mature. But it's those two ideas together. The mature Christian is the Christian that says, I can't do it on my own. The mature Christian that says, I need the body. I need the rest of the church. Paul's exhorting them here to maturity. Point number two. The interdependence of clergy and teachers is important in a healthy church. As this letter continues to give us a window into that first century world, we see that there's a love and a trust among clergy and teachers. St. Paul would not be able to do what St. Paul does as the, as the apostle that travels around without bishops like Timothy and Apollos. Look at verses 10 through 12 of chapter 16. When Timothy comes, writes St. Paul, see that you put him at ease among you, for he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him, help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I'm expecting him with the brothers. Do you see here what Paul's saying? That he's sending Timothy to them. The division in the Christian church here in Corinth has hurt that interdependence among the leaders. 
Notice, who's not there? Who's going to come later after Timothy? Did you catch it? We talked about him early on, remember? Some say, I follow Paul. Some say, I follow Apollos. Apollos is another bishop. In fact, he's the bishop of Corinth at this time, and he's not there. Didymus the Blind, who is a church father writing in Alexandria in the 300, writes this. He says, Apollos was the bishop of Corinth, but he had left the church on account of its divisions and gone to be with Paul. He would not go back with the letter because he did not want to return until the divisions healed. So Paul is bidding them here to, number one, be mature. Number two, restore the relationship with their own bishop, for, in, for the interdependence of the clergy, for the health of the church. Through the Bible, we see Paul write two letters to, to Timothy, the other bishop he's sending first. And he tells Timothy to be strong and good and don't let people despise him because he's young. And these missionary bishops, along with the 12 apostles, depend upon each other. Notice that St. Paul has planned for Timothy to visit the Corinthian church. We see this pattern repeated over and over in the New Testament church. And I think that it's important today. In fact, it might be one of the most important things about being an Anglican Christian, at least to me. Because we see this going on today, don't we? In our own parish, notice we've had people come through. Bishop Jackson, Bishop Ames, Bishop Beckwith from different parts of the country, from different generations, passing along the faith to us in different ways, teaching us in different ways. We also see people coming from other countries, right? Bishop Juan Zimbes coming to us from Nigeria. Father Ajay coming to us from Nigeria. It's a joy that when I'm away, I can entrust this congregation to people like Father Shantz and Father Ewing and Craniac and Deacon Mark. I can, make, I can know that they're going to preach faithfully to you and feed you both at the pulpit and at the altar. Because the mark of a healthy church is to have an interdependence amongst its clergy and leaders. That's not always the case, right? And it's not even always the goal, right? If the church is ever about all about the pastor, if the church is ever all about the priest, if it's all about his sermons and his ministry, you got to be careful because you're getting to an unhealthy church when you do that. We need each other as laity. We need each other as clergy. Finally, we see an interdependence of congregations. We see this going on in the early church in what would become diocese. You know, the word diocese is a Roman word. It's just a word for a geographic subdivision of a province. So, you know, if the province is like Ohio, the diocese is like the county. Okay? And dioceses aren't in place yet at this time. They come around the third century in the church organization. But we see here the seedlings of that. Because what's going on here with Paul? With the interdependence of churches? Look at verses 19 and 20. 
The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a kiss. In this culture, the kiss was the sign of peace, right? In fact, in the early church, when we, when we invited people to share the peace, it wasn't a handshake or a hug. It was actually a kiss on the cheek. Now, obviously, again, cultures change. Things change, right? But what's Paul saying here? That as someone comes from another congregation, as someone visits us or as we visit somewhere else, we should see them as brothers and sisters to the point of being at peace with them, to the point of being able to kiss them or hug them as a brother or sister in Christ. There's an interdependence here of congregations. And this new church meeting in the house of Aquila and Prisca was probably in Ephesus. And St. Paul's probably there as he writes this letter to them. Interestingly enough, Aquila and Prisca are Corinthians themselves, and they're with Paul planting this church in Ephesus. So do you see here, you've got this natural line going from one church to the other. There's a fondness between these early congregations, but it's more than that. There's also a deep sense of duty and help to one another. So here we go back to the beginning of the chapter, verse 1 of chapter 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day and every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem, it seems advisable that I should go also, and they will accompany me. What's Paul saying here? He's reminding them that as congregations, they're not just connected by fondness and goodwill. They're connected at a fiscal level. They're connected as a treasure level. They're connected at a, as a heart level because for where their money is, for where their treasure is, there their heart will be also. It's no small thing. It's why we do what we do as congregations, as dioceses, as provinces, as the international Anglican communion. Do you know that, that there's a way to get money to Africa that we have that nobody else has? When we give money, and we do as a church, and some of you do as individuals, to the Anglican Relief and Development Fund, you can be sure that that money gets to those people over there. And guess what? Because I've investigated this. There's no other way to do it. You can send it Western Union, and it gets stolen. You can send it in the mail, and a government official opens it up and takes it. It's an incredible network around the world. In fact, I remember back, uh, way back and, um, at... Uh, Hope in a Future Conference was way back the, the beginnings of the ACNA, before there was an ACNA. Rick Warren, who some of you know, came to that conference and he said, when Saddleback Church does things in Africa, we use you. Isn't that amazing? Here another denomination 
Baptists or non-denoms, I'm not quite sure what Saddleback is anymore. But here you have another denomination saying, your clergy are the reliable way to get orphanages built, to get hospitals built and maintained, to get food to people that actually need it. It's an amazing thing that we have, and I don't think we think about enough. And it stretches all the way back to here, to St. Paul saying to the Corinthian church, when you take your collections, save aside a part to go to the other churches, to the church in Jerusalem, specifically here. We don't know what's exactly going on in the church at Jerusalem. Scholars posit that uh, there's a famine going on. There's a famine that aligns with the mid-50s A.D. in Jerusalem at this time. So the church in Jerusalem might have been starving. All we know is that Paul has gone to Galatia and now is writing to the Corinthians to give this interdependence of the church. It's a perfect reading, incidentally, for in-gathering or Pledge Sunday. And God in his sovereignty set that up because I actually didn't plan this. But when you pledge and when you give, it's an exciting thing. Don't think of it as a duty. Think of it as an act of charity, as our pledge cards say. Your gifts to Lakewood Anglican are very carefully guarded, and they're used to build a healthy organization that is independent with other organizations, other churches around the world. It's not just to maintain this institution, but to maintain the mission and the purpose. Let me just go through a few quick things here that you've accomplished in the last year, because you need to hear this. I get to see all this. The council gets to see all this, well, some of this, but oftentimes we don't get the feedback, right? So our collections, your sacrificial givings, have made it possible for multiple people in our congregation to have housing. Did you know that? There's at least three people in our congregation that would not be in an apartment if it were not for your giving for one reason or another. Your giving's used to feed the hungry in our congregation and outside of it, to pay electric and gas bills for people, to pay hospital bills for people that can't afford those, to clothe people. Your giving has funded resources that raise up our children to know and love Jesus. Your giving has encouraged young adults at St. Michael's Conference. Your giving has grown us all in the knowledge and love of Jesus. And these collections and sacrificial gifts also take care of your clergy. I'm thankful for that. Leah's thankful for that. You've always made it a priority to take care of us, to take care of our family. You've always paid for the expenses of Deacon Mark, and now, Father Ajay, you will pay the expenses of us going to synod, the expenses of us going and meeting with other clergy so that we can be interdependent with them, to go to deanery meetings. All of that is part of your giving. And finally, your giving goes around the world more than you know. It looks like the mentorship that goes on in this diocese. Father Sean Ewing is actually... My, uh, I'm his mentor. He's my mentee. And that's part of what we do. 
We count on each other. We help each other. Your giving has gone to hurricane relief for those that suffered this year. It's gone to assist campus ministers. It's gone to assist Paraclete, which takes care of missionaries. We give to them. It's gone to the Anglican Relief and Development Fund and been dispersed around the world. Next year, as we approach parish status, we want to expand our giving to the diocese and to the work of church planting as well as being responsible to our own obligations here at Lakewood Anglican. And you're a giving congregation. And I know that you give because God has given you so much. You're an amazing work of God, friends. I'm grateful for you. Please be, continue to be. It's amazing to see St. Paul's call for Christian generosity echo down through today. As Father Gene Sherman and I get together and discuss and commiserate, one of the questions we, we ask each other is, would the community miss us if Christ Church or Lakewood Anglican weren't here? And the answer lately has always been yes. Oh, yes. People would miss us if we weren't here. We have traveled, sometimes struggled, sometimes been encouraged for the last 17 weeks in this letter to the Corinthian church. But one of the most effective and amazing things about the Bible is that whether it's 55 AD under the reign of proconsul Lucius Gallius of Achaia, or in 2018 AD under Governor John Kasich of Ohio, the Bible has important and unchanging things to say and teach us. And yet here we stand in our day, sometimes struggling, sometimes celebrating, being challenged by God's word and fed at his table. And St. Paul's closing to the Corinthians could just as well be a closing to us today as we finish this sermon series and come to Christ the King Sunday next week and Advent the week after that. Look at his closing in verses 21 to the end. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for Lord, let him for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. The word here is actually the Arabic Aramaic Maranatha. Our Lord come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. May love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen.